so tonight's topic is uh, kind of, uh, I guess, an application of what we have been going over for past two weeks now. Uh, I provided a Puritan title um, for the announcement. I don't think I'm going to give that title again. It's very long. You know, I'm just, just going to waste a bunch of time to read it out loud. But uh, yeah, uh, an application of presuppositional apologetics. That's probably, you know, could be summarized with that. But yeah, that's um, that's what we're going to be going over tonight. Josh is obviously going to be handling it as he has been uh, taking us through all the apologetic stuff recently. So Josh is going to pray for us and then get into the old, the old meat and potatoes of it. So you can go ahead and take it away, Josh. Alrighty. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see in your word how we are to uh, live and to rightly order our thinking according to your truth, no matter what these circumstances uh, are in the world or wherever, whether circumstances are where we are. Help us to do that and give us grace to see clearly the idols in our own hearts, to tear them down, just as you are tearing down the idols of the world. Amen. All right. Well, there's everyone. I wonder, as, as Winston... Oh, am I lagging? That's unfortunate. Um, I shouldn't be. Okay. I, you know what? I know what it was. I was bowing my head and praying away from the microphone. <laughs> so it was probably cutting in and out as Discord was picking up my voice and then not picking it up anymore. Um, so there you go. That's, that's how that happens. All right. Uh, so the topic, the title of our topic tonight, I am going to read the whole thing because I'm very proud of this title. Uh, the title is Directions for Christian Warfare, an application of presuppositional apologetics to the paganism rampant in our day, namely those in high places and lofty positions by making use of the word of God and an exegesis of the Psalms of Asaph. So. If you haven't been here for the last few weeks with learning the presuppositional method, I'm not going to review it in full detail. What I'm going to attempt to do is to demonstrate an application of it to a current event and worldview that uh, is rampant in our day, namely uh, secular politicism. Uh, I, don't, I don't know a better word for it. It is a religion of everyone left, right, and center. And one of its central idols came under attack, and it showed. And so I want to help, hopefully, uh, prayerfully provide a help for you all navigating this as you dis discuss it with others, with other Christians. Uh, many Christians 
demonstrated that they were also worshiping at the uh, Temple of Baal this past uh, week or so in the way that they responded to some of these events. And, and so I I want to look at some of the responses of the culture, analyze them from a Christian worldview, demonstrate what is called the antithesis, that uh, they inescapably live in this world as his creatures, and yet suppressing the truth and righteousness have contradicted his truth at every point. So first, let's look at, I know, so we'll, we're going to look at the Psalms of Asaph here, and specifically Psalm 78 and Psalm 79. But I want to look at Romans 1 first to remind everyone of what it is, because Justin was in Rome a long time ago. So I just want to remind us what it says about unbelievers of every stripe, no matter what their professed religion is, what it is that they truly believe and practice. So, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, you discussed that i've said that many times they're suppressing the truth and righteousness that's where i get that from it's right here in the bible for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them so they, they have inescapable knowledge of god they, they, they cannot escape the fact that they know god but they don't know him in the right way For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So are without guilt before God. Though it is not sufficient to save them. So a, a Christian has a saving knowledge of God. A non-Christian has sufficient knowledge to establish their guilt before God. They cannot come before the throne of God in judgment and say, well, uh, I get off the hook because you didn't tell me enough about yourself. No, that's not the case. They have clear and distinct knowledge of not just an ambiguous God, not an unknown God, but God the creator. For although they knew God, verse 21, they don't honor him as God or why there is no neutrality that knowing the true god but not responding to him properly they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened verse 22 claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, that last part is very important for what we're going to look at because the prime religion that we have seen God assault its temple, <laughs> its idol factory, uh, in recent days is this political secularism 
And, and we can see that uh, just like with any other religion, you presuppose the truth of your position because it is an ultimate claim on reality. Claims that reality uh, is that the, the, the claims of your religion are foundational to the way the world is, and then you operate from there, and there's a collision of worldviews. This is the reason so much of our political discourse, spe specifically in the United States, they talk past one another. Why? Because they're approaching the world from a different presuppositional basis. They have a different foundation they're starting with. That foundation is never exposed or discussed. It is merely assumed. And then they draw conclusions from that foundation that are, of course, antithetical to one another because they're starting at different places. Now, neither of the primary political parties have a proper Christian worldview foundation. They don't. They, they, they do not. And so we see both sides uh, ranting, railing, and raving in such a way that is demonstrable of Romans 1, 18 to 23. They have exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man. In this case, it is their own image. While there is not a uh, deity that they've constructed, that they've installed in the White House in worship, uh, some, some idol of stone and brick and mortar, what they have done is they have, uh, though futile in their thinking, have assumed their thinking is pretty darn good. And have used their own thoughts, their own reasonings, and their own self-proclaimed wisdom as the basis for how they are attempting to govern God's creation, God's creatures, human beings made in his image. You can't do that. It doesn't work. The only sound foundation for any political theory is a Christian worldview. I will say it again. No qualifications. The only sound foundation for any political theory is a Christian worldview. So when you abandon a Christian worldview, you end up in futility in your thinking. The darkening of foolish hearts claims to be wise, but truly being a fool, and setting up idols, and then demanding that others worship along with you. So, when we're looking at uh, current political milieu and events and discussing these things, we have to remember that it doesn't matter if one side has certain moral positions that are more in line with, with the Christian worldview. If that's not your starting point, if you have the wrong God, if you are not worshiping God and instead worshiping your own vain imaginations, your own wisdom, your own thoughts, then God will come after you. <laughs> this is the essence of pride, setting your own gods up as if you know better than your creator who has made his, himself known and clear and has shown you with clarity that he exists and how you ought to relate to him rightly. You rebel against that, you kick against that, 
uh, common grace may turn you toward a, a few correct paths because those who established your political philosophy were Christians. You inevitably end up in futility, stupidity, and sin if you do not have Christian worldview foundation to your thinking in every area of life. It will happen. So, one of the ways that this bore itself out, uh, what I had pulled up before I realized it was probably contributing somewhat to my lagging, um, was this, uh, someone had compiled a massive thread of screenshots on Twitter. And I can link to it uh, if you all want to. So yeah, I'm not making this stuff up. Many, many prominent voices and people, news stations, etc. The future president of the United States, um, all in making comments on the Capitol riot, used religious language to describe what was happening. And you can't just ignore that kind of thing. It is revealing of what is in their hearts, namely that they have set up their political system as an idol. They called the capital the temple of democracy, a sacred place, sacred grounds, the violation of, of, sacred, of a sacred space. All of that kind of language demonstrates what is in the heart. It is not a sacred space. It's not a temple. <laughs> Um, yes, reminds me of the French Revolution. Quite so. Um, when you reject Christianity, you will serve another god, another religion. And you will adopt religious language that will demonstrate which god you serve. And this shows up in every single kind of irreligious worldview whether it is scientific naturalism, atheism, humanism, secular political theories, they all have to, at bottom, adopt faith commitments to get their worldview off the ground. The foundation of their worldview must be believed on the basis of an assumption, not a, a presupposition, not on the basis of any other kind of external criteria because it is the foundation of their worldview. It gets everything else off the ground. As we pointed out in the past few weeks, the problem is that their foundation cannot provide the necessary conditions for the intelligibility of the rest of the world and the rest of life. So the foundation of a secular political theory, if it's atheism or, or something along those that it gets it off the ground or a common good or things like that cannot provide the conditions to provide explanatory power to, uh, for example, language, speech, etc. Logic, morality, very important politics. You need to have some kind of foundation for a moral system. If you don't, anything goes. Whoever wins gets to just arbitrarily dictate ethics and morals. And then law 
in the recent events was that they all have an eschatology. They all have a view of how history ought to go. You'll hear the phrase, be on the right side of history, or history will look back on this event and, and, and judge the victor as being my side or, or the other side. Uh, those kinds of statements are being made. But from a secular political perspective, uh, history doesn't judge anything. History is a neutral party. It is not personal. There's no crafter and author of it. From a Christian worldview, God is the one who creates, guides, directs, and ultimately decides how history plays out. So for the Christian, our eschatology, our view of how history goes and how it culminates, the end of it, that's eschatology is literally the study of the eschaton, the end. Um, our eschatology actually has hope built into it. It has a reality to it. Um, it has predictability to it. We, we, can, we can track with what the Bible says about the way history is, is going and going to go. And we can base our assumptions about the future on the past. Because God is consistent. He keeps his promises. When he says, I'm going to do this, he does it. And when he handles people in a certain way in the past, we can assume because he is consistent, he's going to do the same thing in the future. And that's what I want to look at uh, in Scripture tonight in, in the Psalms is to examine these two Psalms. One is a historical recounting, and the other uh, is also a historical recounting of different periods of, of the nation of Israel. And we can take a lot of abuses out of it, but I want to contrast it with the despair that inevitably comes from having a baseless eschatology, from having a, a view of history that has no solid foundation, where the past and the future are disconnected, and knowledge of both is absent. So, Psalm 78, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to summarize it because it's important for Psalm 79. Um, let me turn to it. It's a very long psalm, as you can probably see if, if you've turned there with me. Uh, if not, um, and you'll see it says it's a map of Asaph. That's why the title, looking at the Psalms of Asaph. And uh, the opening lines say this, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And then the rest of the psalm tracks through Okay. Sorry about that. This psalm tracks through the entirety of Israel's history from the Exodus to David. And why is that important? Well, 
remember what what he says in the opening is that he, he's going to explain what his fathers have told him, and he's going to explain that to his the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And the reason is that uh, if you, you'll notice that uh, if you read through the psalm, I highly recommend doing so. It's a wonderful summary of most of the Old Testament, most of Old Testament history, all the way up through David. Uh, you'll see this refrain of, of, in spite of what God did, they still sinned. In spite of what God did, they still sinned. Yet, though God did this amazing thing and rescued them, yet, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, did not keep his law. And there is a, another refrain of they, they, they turned away from God and acted like their fathers. So, so there is a ancestral passing on of this pattern of sin and rebellion um, that you, you see. And, it, and it's not because of their father's sin, therefore they commit the same exact sin, but rather because they all share in the sinful nature. And it ends with a note of hope with, with David shepherding the people of God. And that's where it ends. But if you know the rest of the story, then you know that after David comes Solomon. And Solomon takes to, he abandons the dictates of God as to what a godly king is supposed to be like. He gathers for himself many horses. He gathers for himself many wives. And those wives lead him into idolatry. He sets up idols on the high places and at the end of his life go read ecclesiastes he regrets all of it he regrets all of it and from there his children cause a torrent of rebellion and idolatry and evil and wickedness in the land which culminates in uh, after the kingdom has been divided into a northern and southern kingdom both being judged by pagan nations. God uses pagan nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to come in and judge his people. They, they sweep in, they bring death and destruction, and then they enslave first the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and enslave the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is. Now, the Assyrians get punished for the pride and haughtiness with which they conquer the northern kingdom. They get punished for the way in which they go about in their warfare with the Babylonians. So even the instrument of God's punishment is subject to his judgment. And that's important to remember that God uses pagans against each other and also as a as, as temporal judgment upon his people. Unless we mistake God's kindness toward us for eternity as an absence of temporal punishment. And by punishment, I simply mean, um, I, I rather should say discipline. Temporal discipline for those who are his. Punishment for those who are not. God does this. He disciplines us for our sake that we would repent. And he punishes the wicked. So Psalm 78 sets up this 
It's this history of remember, 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 remember your forefathers, remember history, remember God's powerful works. Psalm 79 is an application of this to a contemporary situation to the author after Jerusalem has fallen and been wrecked, raided, and burned by the Babylonians. You see, this is, this is the response. Now, we have to recognize that the people at the time were in deep with sin. It was not that the Babylonians went and conquered a Christianized holy nation. They went and conquered a sinful, rebellious one. While God keeps a remnant of his people, even within the darkest of places, who are still bowing their knee to him and not to idols, you still have uh, temporal judgment happening intranationally. That a nation will be brought against another one, or even within one, there will be judgment within warfare, violence, etc., as God demonstrates the truth of Romans 1. Because if we remember, Romans 1, 18, begins with the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and righteousness of men, that their foolishness of their hearts, the darkness of their hearts, the futility of their thinking is judgment. And when it heightens to great heights, when they go farther and farther from the truth that they suppress with their unrighteousness, that is God hardening their hearts judicially as judgment. We see this happen with Pharaoh in Egypt. The more and more he rejects Moses, the more rebellious he gets in his heart. He says that he hardens his heart and that God hardens his heart. And that both of those things are happening at the same time. So Psalm 79 is the, 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 the nations come in and uh, wreck Jerusalem, and this is a prayer of a truly repentant, holy man within the rubble. Some speculate it was written by Jeremiah, um, but there's no reason to doubt necessarily that that is the Psalm of Asaph. Um, but Jeremiah authorship could be possible as well. And ASAP put it to music. Who knows? Um, but I'm going to read this one. And again, this, we're, we're applying apologetics. So I, I, will, I will circle back around there in a moment. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have put their blood like water all in Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. They become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around. Jerusalem is wrecked, bodies everywhere, blood and death destruction. And he is saying that, that the uh, neighboring nations are going to mock them. Their, their, their God is weak because they've been conquered. But he recognizes that they brought this on themselves. 
How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Jealousy? Yes, this is the word most often used to describe how God feels about idolatry. He commands us in his law to devote ourselves wholly to him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all, all of your strength. And so when we devote ourselves to idols, to anything that is not God, then his jealousy burns. It is pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. So God has wrath for the idolater, no matter whether they live in Jerusalem or Babylon. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Now he's going to get around to his own repentance. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. He has humbled himself. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. So remember Psalm 78 is, is doing exactly that, is recounting the praise to God due to him for his salvation that he rendered unto a sinful and rebellious people. So the psalmist of 79 is looking at 78 and saying, we've been in this situation before. And the reason is that the people of God have been rebellious and sinful. That, uh, as I was reading earlier today, a, a sermon by a, a fellow named Leonard Ravenhill said, a, a nation is only as moral as its churches. Um, and you, you see that there's been a great decline within the, the Christianity in the West over the last century or more, really. And when we see the things that our forefathers built, who had a Christian worldview, who, who, who assumed that as their basic assumption, that there is one God, and he's worthy of worship and praise, and that he has brought salvation through Christ alone, that those are their, their basic assumptions about the world that God made them. And made them in such a way that they're made in his image and have inherent dignity and value. And all the other ethical claims of Christianity that, again, are baked into their political philosophy. If you abandon Christianity, you cannot maintain their political philosophy. You can't. It, do, it won't work anymore. And you will inevitably arrive at something different. Because you're starting somewhere else. This is why in our apologetic, we start 
with the assumption that we do. Christianity is true because it is impossible for it to be false, because the world is not intelligible otherwise. You cannot even begin to have a discussion with someone who's not a Christian unless the world is intelligible. And you can't have a sound political philosophy unless the world is intelligible. So for starters, if you have, you don't, you, you must have objective ethical standards by which you create just laws, etc. So without those things, you will set up idols, you will worship those, you will set up unjust laws and wicked ones. And God didn't stop having wrath against unjust nations at the end of the Old Testament. He overthrows the Roman Empire. Except the way he overthrows the Roman Empire is through two of his classic ways. Do you know what he does? He inserts his people among them. They devote themselves to prayer and the worship of God, the singing of songs, the discipleship of their children and their neighbor. And then he brings in the barbarians to topple the political system. And that's how things go down. <laughs> and the Christians get blamed for it. And they're in the awkward spot of saying, well, you guys kind of deserved this. You were bringing it on yourselves. And uh, but but we 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 didn't do this. <laughs> um, that is that is where we've been for a while. But the pressure is being placed upon people, and it's coming out. The idolatry that has been lurking under the waves of our uh, political climate is emerging with all of its five-headed dragon, full force. Uh, beasts and praise god that some men and women christian ones have been training their children and raising them up and others discipling their neighbor to be dragon slayers and 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 that is what we do that is what our job is in in the midst of this stuff we have a cheerful obedience to god we keep doing the same exact things that we ought to have been doing as faithful christians speaking truth to our neighbors, worshiping God with the people of God, singing songs of praise to the great acts of God, recounting his works, not just the ones in the Bible, but the ones that he's done in your life. I mean, shoot, hop into Bible chat sometime and just be like, hey, you know what God did, did for me this week? It was amazing. Good providence of God. Look at this. Um, that's how we fight dragons. <laughs> and then we die for it. We're not there yet. And Lord willing, we won't see it in our lifetime. Uh, however, that he might pan that out. We don't need to summon martyrdom upon ourselves. There's no need for that. But the antithesis to the idolater is true worship. False worship is combated with true worship. Gathering with the people of God. Weekly, Sunday morning. Singing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs to the Lord. 
in spirit and truth, repenting of our sins. Notice in the psalm, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. We are brought very low. We humble ourselves, repent of our sins, seek God. And as he does, he prays that God's wrath will be reversed away from his own people and upon the nations who oppress them. Pour out your anger on the nations. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will you hold back your anger? Will you be jealous to bring the nations to call upon your name forever? No. Turn your wrath on the nation. And, and again, God brings down a nation by turning them into Christians. That's what he does. Historically, that's what he's done. Grab a church history book. Recount the works of God to others. This is what we do. This is what God's people have always done. And the biggest thing is, is don't despair. There's a lot of Debbie Downers in the uh, politics chat lately. There's no need for despair. Um, God will not be mocked. He is consistent. He is the same. He will bring justice to his world on his timing and speak truth each one of you to his neighbor whatever political sphere they fall in if they have made an idol out of their politics they must repent they must repent of their idolatry reformation and revival always starts at an individual level, people humbling themselves before God, repenting of their specific sins toward him. And then it bleeds out to the rest because every single person works and lives in the culture. They work and live in a nation and it bleeds out to the rest. So there you go. Um, how, how does God take down unjust, wicked rulers and nations through his people, through his word being read, meditated upon, acted upon, through singing. I, I could do a whole entire lesson one night on just how God uses singing to as, as a means of warfare. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating if you just go through the, the Bible the, the triumphant saints of Revelation singing around the throne as their militant king brings his justice to the earth. Like this is a it's a very common theme. Um and through prayer. Praying, prayers like Psalm 79. If you don't know what to pray, pray through the Psalms. If you don't know what to do, read the Bible. If you don't know how to feel, read the Bible. <laughs> And 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 a lot of folks who are in here are are pretty young and may not have been impacted in the way that some of the older folks have, um, but but I have seen quite a bit of of emotional reaction and investment in all of it. So I wanted to take the time to apply what I've been teaching to a real situation. There's an, an antithesis not just in 
our thinking from a intellectual level, but in our response, in our emotions, and in our actions to history as it unfolds before us. God is in control of history. He is bringing it to a mighty conclusion, whatever your view on when that happens. Uh, we all agree that he is the one directing and controlling it, and that he will bring the nations to himself. He will conquer them for Christ. So that's our great hope in the midst of insanity. So, uh, yeah, there you go. I think I said this back when the coronavirus stuff was happening. Very similar application. Cheerful obedience to God in the face of crazy times. Let's pray. Lord, give us, grant us by your grace and by your spirit, cheerful obedience to you. Hope in your sovereignty over history. And I pray that you were you would not be angry forever, that you would pour out your anger upon the wicked, whether it is poured out upon Christ in their place or upon them directly. Bring justice to your world. And we know that your people will always be there in the world. And so preserve us, preserve our life, preserve our families and our homes, and preserve our freedom to go about and worship you and bring the gospel to our neighbor. And use that, cause us to use that freedom to, to do so, and use it to topple ungodly rulers and nations. Amen. Amen. It was good stuff, Josh. Idolatry can really be found out anywhere, especially in politics. It's especially this time. It's it's good to address it head on. Um, now is uh, the time for y'all to ask questions if you have any. You can either toss them in the Bible study chat, or you could use your voice and uh, you know ask through through the microphone. Either one works, but yeah, now's the time for y'all to do that. A lot of the... Oh, there we go. Here I am. I think it was very good what you said, but I feel like, so in the beginning you were talking about um, how if we are Christians and we have our Christian views, and those Christians' views should be evident once we are, like, I guess you could say, well, ruling over a country right yeah yeah um but don't you then feel like that's maybe slightly idealistic because i don't think if if you were to run for president with your 100 percent um like banned abortion like completely and gay marriage and whatever else nobody's gonna vote for you or there are gonna be people there you're never gonna win let me put it that way so don't you feel like that's a bit idealistic then? It's idealistic until you look at history. Um, no one thought Constantine would convert Christianity. And then one day he did. 
No one, I mean, you, you, and he's not, he's just one example. Now, good, bad, right, or wrong, some of the actions he took afterwards uh, did not do Christians any favors or, or necessarily the world any favors, but it radically changed the face of the Roman Empire forever. Um, and there was no violent coup. There was no, like, no one over, overthrew him for it. Um, now, in our current context, you're right. If I ran for president uh, when I could, uh, I think minimum age is, I don't even know what the minimum age is. Look at me. Good American. Don't know my own political system well. Um, 45, 30, 30, I thought it was 35. Or is that for, like, Senate? Uh, so in seven years, if I ran for president, I would likely lose. You're right. Uh, with a very, a platform very similar to the one that you, you described. Um, but the point isn't to win according to the world's ways of winning. It would be wrong for me to abandon my Christian worldview in order to appeal to the sinful hearts of the majority who would vote for me. That would be wrong. I'd be denying Christ at that point in order to uh, supplicate their perspectives. Um, but in a contemporary example, I think uh, it's a few years ago. Now, I am completely ignorant of, of world other nations and, and their political systems and politics. But I think Poland completely abolished abortion not too long ago. And Christ is their technical, the technical king of the nation. Like that's like in their legal documents. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, and, and you look back, I mean, it really is a very novel thing for the rulers of a nation to be secular. It really is. Um, and as I was pointing out, a secular ruler has his own set of gods. He does worship. And if he's not worshiping the true God, he's worshiping an idol. And as we saw in Romans 1, idolatry brings futility and foolishness and darkened hearts. So if you either have a ruler who is worshiping Christ openly and is not futile in his thinking, or you have one who is worshiping an idol and is futile in his thinking. And claims to be wise, but is a fool. I don't know about you, but I would I don't want a foolish ruler governing yeah. my nation. So yeah. so yeah, like it's I, I I agree with you. I wouldn't win. <laughs> um but it's not the point, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. Um I just feel like it would be very hard to find a ruler that is strong like doesn't abandon his beliefs then yeah um, yeah it, it is absolutely yeah. <laughs> as yeah. demonstrated by the history of israel like yeah. <laughs> you have like a, a literal i can count the good kings of israel on one hand <laughs> yeah so well thank you yeah good good question though yeah the the the, the practicality of it is often what gets <laughs> It's like, no one's going to buy this. Oh, yeah. Not unless their hearts changed. Absolutely. It's true.
Oh yeah, let me grab that link that I said I was, that some of the ones I was going to read from, and then you could probably just dump those in the the Bible chat or the Bible study chat. Yeah, it's it's like an entire Twitter thread that just if you want to see all of the he compiled. I think that'll take you to it. I had a, I had trouble getting to it earlier. I I clicked like three different areas and finally got to it. Um, but that guy, yeah, he he just compiled like he just searched a bunch of people and found all the religious language. Right, Twitter is source of truth. Yeah. Any other I don't questions? actually have a Twitter account. I just stalk Andrew's Twitter account, and sometimes he retweets things that I find interesting. But I don't have one myself. Most of our usual questioners are out. Yeah, I guess, um... guess if there's not any questions then we can be done.